You are listening to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Wine-Banks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations with experts on various issues facing our country today. Okay, so as always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. On our show today, we will be discussing a moment that we find ourselves in right now, calling for racial justice, economic equality, and police reform. And we could not be more appreciative to have on the show today, um, Dr. uh, Rayshawn Ray. Uh, Dr. Ray is a David M. Rubenstein Fellow in Government Studies at the uh, Brookings Institution and a Professor of Sociology and Executive Director of the Lab for Applied Social Science Research at the University of Maryland College Park. Dr. Ray also addresses the mechanisms that manufacture and maintain racial and social inequality. Dr. Ray has uh, published over 50 books, articles, and book chapters, and nearly 20 op-eds. Dr. Ray has also written for the New York Times, Huffington Post, and NBC News, and has appeared on MSNBC. CNN, NPR, and other networks to discuss his research. So thank you so much for being here, um, Rayshon. Well, Victor and Jill, thank you for having me. It is an honor to, uh, to be on your podcast, and I look forward to the conversation. Likewise. Um, so I'll kick it off to Jill to um, handle this first half of the conversation. Thank you, Victor, and thank you, uh, Rayshon, for being with us. We are just really pleased. You seem to be the perfect guest for our subject today about racial justice, racial equality, economic equality. Um, And it's, you know, we have to go back a long, long way. Uh, As you know, Victor and I represent two very different generations. And I, of course, was very involved in the 1960s in civil rights movement, but a whole new episode seems to have started on May 25th when we all saw the videotape of the murder of George Floyd uh, at the hands of the police where you saw officer Derek Chauvin and three other officers standing around watching for over eight minutes as um, officer Chauvin had his knee on the neck of Mr. Floyd, ignoring his pleas that he couldn't breathe. And this was all because he may have used a counterfeit $20 bill to buy a pack of cigarettes. Um, We have new footage just yesterday that shows how quickly the police escalated this, pointing a gun at him and trying to force him into a car, even though he was saying, please don't put me in there, I'm claustrophobic. Um, The incident was just one in a long line of recent cases of police brutality and killings of people of color. Uh, But for some reason, this is the one that captured national attention and created a national movement for racial justice. And that has led to many policies being enacted by states and federal and um, uh, even local levels to combat the injustice and to inform uh, the people about what needs to be done to reform the police. Um, So what I'd like to do is start with talking about some of the policies that you've seen pass since the killing of George Floyd. Um, And let's just list a few of them, if you would. And then I'd like to talk about which you think might be the most effective way, either those that have passed, of those that have passed, or what's the most effective thing that you would propose that we do to 
remedy the systemic problems of racism, inequality, and police brutality? Yeah, thank you for that such important question. I mean, as you highlighted, what happened with George Floyd, everyone's seen it. We are in a moment where we have paused, at least at that particular time, as it related to the COVID-19 pandemic. And everyone, no matter if you were on cable news, local news, or social media, everyone's seen that video. And then I think there is something about the movement for Black Lives and their ability to be able to um, impact social media algorithms, where as new people started to use the hashtag Black Lives Matter, people started to use justice for George Floyd, justice for Breonna Taylor, justice for Ahmaud, that led to a series of additional videos popping up where people could see that what happened to George Floyd was not simply an anomaly, but instead it was a pattern. And as I've been writing about, it's an example of how bad apples come from rotten trees and policing. We like to talk about the officers in Minneapolis as being bad apples. Um, but as we know, there are additional incidents that happen that suggest that policing as an organization has a structural and cultural problem as it relates to racial bias, as it relates to corruption, and it's something that really needs to change. When I think about policies, we can highlight them on every level. Let's start with the federal government, because I think what's coming up with the upcoming election and the implications that the election has um, for um, what's happening around police reform is really important. So as we know, the, the Senate, uh, Senate Republicans led by Senator Scott put forth the Justice Act. And that act didn't pass the Senate, but it was monumental in the sense that it corresponded in a lot of ways to the uh, act coming out of the House of Representatives led by the Congressional Black Caucus and Congresswoman Bass and others. And, and we really have to give a lot of kudos to Senator Cory Booker as well as uh, Senator Kamala Harris, who were leading a lot of these efforts over time. But those two acts had a lot of, those two pieces of legislation had a lot in, in common. Now the Senate Act didn't pass. The legislation, um, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act did pass in the House of Representatives. But as you all know, they're at a stalemate. Um, the Senate probably won't bring it up. But symbolically it represented something because what Democrats aim to do, of course, that, I think this was the same week where they were kneeling um, on Capitol Hill. And part of that moment was that the act passed on the day that Tamir Rice would have turned 18 years old. So the symbolism behind it was important. Um, what people, of course, most people don't know outside of politics is that that current piece of legislation means nothing at this point because the Senate hasn't brought it up, hasn't passed it. And of course, the president would have to sign it. I tend to think that if Biden wins, in November, that this will be a, uh, one of the first pieces of legislation. And, and of course, if the Senate flips, which both could happen, then that'll be one of the first pieces of legislation that will come to bear in 2021. So what we're left with at this point are a couple of things at the federal level. The first thing is that Democrats and Republicans, both pieces of legislation in the Senate and the House of Representatives, agree that we need more implicit bias training, agree that we need body-worn cameras, agree that we need to remove no-knock warrants, and so those things are common. But those particular outcomes, as my research has highlighted, are individualistic. They focus on individual officers and individual decision making. What they don't focus on is on the structure. But the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act goes 
a lot farther than that. First thing it does is that it grapples with qualified immunity and says that that's something that should not stick around. I think qualified immunity is one of the biggest barriers to holding police officers accountable. Of course, that legislation is about saying that um, law enforcement officers cannot be held civilly liable. But that legislation is important because of the interpretation of the legislation leads to juries, judges, and lawyers, district attorneys, and defense attorneys oftentimes interpreting that legislation as applying to criminal proceedings, even though it doesn't necessarily carry over to that. So the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act aimed to deal with that. The other big thing that both pieces of legislation dealt with, and I'm gonna get to what we currently have on the table now at the federal level, which is Trump's executive order, is that both were in favor of creating a bad apples database. So this will be a national database when officers are um, either convicted of misconduct of police brutality or they resign while under investigation. See, that's really, really important. Why is that important? Because part of what the Democrats aim to do with the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is to highlight that Tamir Rice would still be alive if we had that legislation today. What do I mean by that? Well, Timothy Lohman, who was the officer who killed 12-year-old Tamir Rice in under two seconds when he rode up on him, that that officer had previously resigned from another department because he was deemed unfit mentally to be an officer. Not only did he kill Tamir Rice and then Tamir Rice's family was awarded about $6 million, but Timothy Lohman went on to work in another department. And the officer who was with Timothy Lohman had previously had a uh, police brutality lawsuit settled for about two or $300,000 when a woman called because her, her, her driveway was blocked and it ended up with her being body slammed on the ground, beaten up by the police officer, and she was a black woman. So these are pieces of legislation that both Democrats and Republicans agree with. What they don't agree about is qualified immunity, and they also don't agree, Democrats don't agree with the incentivizing that Republicans aim to give to law enforcement to do their job. At the What we have now is an executive order that has laid out some of the things that I mentioned around, um, hasn't necessarily banned chokeholds, Trump didn't directly ban it, talked about body-worn cameras, talked about a national database uh, for bad officers, and also talked about a use of force database. Because the big thing people don't realize is that we only have data from about 21 states across the country on police killings. That's only about 40% of all police departments. So we know how many people are killed by jellyfish every year. The CDC collects it but we do not collect information on how many people are killed by the police. That should unnerve us all. So that's the federal level. Let's go to kind of statewide. In can, Colorado, can I stop you for a second? I just wanna stress some of the things that you've said for our listeners. Um, and that is the qualified immunity that police now have, number one means that they can't be sued for their bad acts. And it also, what you're saying is creates, um, even when they can be charged with criminal cases, for example, juries kind of keep in mind that qualified immunity and may be more likely to acquit them. So it has a bigger impact even than the immunity that they get under the law. And that's something that needs to be changed. And when you're talking about databases, I wanna remind our listeners that we our very, very first uh, podcast was with the Better Government Association, uh, its outside counsel and its president. 
And what we talked about was um, a problem that was maybe unique to Chicago where the police contract uh, allowed the police to destroy records of misconduct after four years. And so it's very hard to develop a pattern or practice. Sorry, my phone just went off. Um, it, it prevented proving pattern and practice cases because you didn't have records going back far enough. And what you're talking about, of course, would have stopped some of the people who were evil doers who killed people um, and we could have known so that they wouldn't have gotten another job. So those are important points that we need to really focus on. So I'm sorry, go ahead. Now you're, you were saying. No, I mean, you're, I mean, you're exactly right. And I mean, you have me thinking about these broader trends in policing. So yes. every year, over a thousand people are killed by the, by the police and we don't have that information. And when it comes to black people, of course, black people are disproportionately more likely to face police violence. And every 40 hours in the United States, a black person is killed by the police. And black people are 3.5 times more likely than whites to be killed by police when they're not attacking or have a weapon. And this is the reason why people are protesting. And you know, I'll just quickly say like on a state level, one of the things we're seeing is states like Colorado and I think other states, if they can deal with the law enforcement um, it would deal with what's called Libor, Libor, which is the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights, which protects officers. Maryland has that piece of legislation, so it prevents a lot of the prosecution of police officers. And so there are a lot of policies on the books that are going to be rolled back. Colorado is aiming to roll back qualified immunity. Maryland is aiming to roll back the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights. And I think rolling back those policies are just as important as implementing new policies. Thank you. That that is definitely true. And um, you know, it's it's sad that it took this last killing to sort of flip the switch um, on attention to the issue, because we could have gotten this done years ago. And I think one of the most important things you said before was um, if President Biden and a blue Senate are mm -hmm. elected that we will actually see the kind of changes that are necessary. Uh, because right now, as you've noted, good things have been passed by the Congress, which is democratic. And uh, Mitch McConnell won't even let them be heard or voted or discussed. So we need not just to focus on the fact that a bad executive order came from Donald Trump, we need to focus on the fact that the Senate is stymieing any kind of reform. Um, but when we're talking about reform, one of the phrases that seems to have really caught on is defund the police. I think that there is a fundamental lack of understanding of what defunding the police means in the minds of those who are saying defund the police. Um, and that there's a partisan divide in how Democrats and Republicans are hearing that phrase. So could you sort of briefly talk about what you think defunding the police entails in terms of when people are saying defund the police? Do they actually mean let's just abolish the police or do they mean reallocate the funds to other uh, forces that could better deal with some of the issues that police aren't trained to deal with? Uh, putting money in community policing, putting money in 
jobs for the unemployed, putting money into social workers who could respond to domestic disputes without guns. Um, you know, so what do you think it means and how could that be implemented in a way that will work the best? I mean, you just hit the nail on the head. Um, you, could, you could definitely just talk about this. I mean, so I wrote a piece in Brookings called, what does defund the police mean and does it have merits? And that's exactly what I said is that when people say defund the police, they mean reallocate. Um, they don't necessarily mean abolish. Um, I heard Congresswoman Bass, I was on a, um, an event with her a couple of weeks ago and she said, she said, rather than just saying defund the police, it's really about reinvesting in the community. And yes. people have to recognize mm -hmm. that, that they're, and, and so does, does defund the police, how is it different from abolishing and does it have merit? So abolish, of course, means to completely do away with law enforcement. But even people who say that, they don't exactly mean completely do away with policing. I think what they mean is, is really chop down the rotten trees. Anyone who plants knows that you can spray weeds one year and the next year they grow back. Because if you don't really deal with the roots, they're going to come back. And that's part of what happens in law enforcement is that the roots of law enforcement, we have to be very realistic in this country, that the roots of law enforcement has links back to slave patrols. That's the way that law enforcement started, particularly in the South, that as slaves would flee the plantation, people would go chase them. And people haven't seen the movie Harriet, they should. It's one of oh, the best yeah. movies I've seen. Is, it is so moving. If you don't cry during that movie, yeah. there's something wrong with you. It is phenomenal, phenomenal movie. Amazing movie, you know, and, and that was one of the first uh, kind of enslavement era movies that I let my kids watch. I have an eight and a nine year old, two boys. Mm -hmm. And after that movie, my oldest kid said, wow, I think Harriet Tubman is the bravest person I've ever seen. And I love that statement because he didn't yeah. say bravest woman. He didn't say something about, he, he, just, he just said bravest person. And I think that's what that oh. movie embodies. So I, that was a proud moment for me to hear him say that. But as we think about defund the police, there are other people who just want to see policing come anew. They want to reimagine policing. But when it comes to defund the police, it's about reallocating funding and it has merits. And there are a few specific reasons for it. The first thing is because in a lot of cities around the country, from Minneapolis to, to LA where Victor's going to UCLA and even Washington DC, these cities spend over a third of its general fund budget on policing, over a third. So the question is, if you're spending every one out of $3, what is your return on that? Yeah. When I look at it and take a market-driven approach to policing, we see that the return on investment isn't there. I'll quickly highlight three things. First, is related to calls for service. Nine out of 10 calls for service have nothing to do with violence. It doesn't mean that something won't turn violent, but nine out of 10 are nonviolent calls. A large percentage are things like traffic stops or a pothole being in the road or something happening where we could have other people in social services. There are a lot of mental health and addiction calls. We have mental health and addiction specialists who could be covering those particular calls and, and doing tons of work with police officers. I've interviewed hundreds of them. I've conducted implicit bias trainings with thousands of them. I've had hundreds of them come through my virtual reality decision-making program that we have at the University of Maryland, and they don't want to be responding to these calls either. So that's the first thing. Second thing is it relates to the clearance rate. And I think this is probably one of the most important reasons. The clearance rate is how successful is law enforcement at solving violent crime. They're not successful at all. 40% of homicides go unsolved. 66% of rapes 
about 70% of robberies and about 40 to 50% of aggravated assaults go unsolved every single year. Like they're just not good at what they're supposed to be doing. And I think part of it is because they have so much on them. If people actually follow and look at what police officers do on a daily basis, they are overstressed. They are overworked. They are oftentimes underpaid. They can't afford to live in major metropolitan areas. So they're working tons of overtime. They're trying to get certain charges on people so they can fill out a lot of reports so that they can stay longer for overtime. And they're not solving the crimes that people want to see solved regardless of the neighborhood they're in. Final thing is, Research is documented. There was a recent study came out looking at 60 years of data showing that an increase in police funding, an increase in number of police officers has not correlated with a decrease in crime. What has correlated with a decrease in crime is uh, more education equity. So investing in education, ensuring that kids have an equal opportunity for the same type of schooling and a work infrastructure. The final thing I'll say on this front centers on um, civil payouts for, uh, for police misconduct. That George Floyd's family is going to eventually get a large civil settlement. That money's not going to come out the police budget. It's going to come from the general fund. So on top of the over 30% that Minneapolis gives to public safety, now they're going to be paying millions of dollars for George Floyd's family. And even more disheartening, George Floyd's family, is their money is going to be used to pay them back for the dehumanization and murder of their loved one need to change the structure and people who say defund the police and reallocate it has a lot of merits wow you've said so many great things in that answer um i i'm i'm in awe i want to stress maybe or just highlight uh, at least two of them one as i i was in charge of career and technical ed for the city of chicago um under arnie duncan for the chicago public schools and so i saw the benefits of equal education and of better educational opportunities. Um, and I think you hit it on the head when you said, if we could put some more money into our schools and to education, that would definitely help. Um, that's really important. The other thing that I loved was when you said that we should not be saying defund the police. I don't know why that's the phrase that caught on um, any more than I can explain why George Floyd is the one who created this movement, or why Harvey Weinstein is the one who created the Me Too movement. It should have been Donald Trump and all his wrongdoing. But, um, but I, I like, and although I'm not sure that I would say reinvest in the communities, because I think it's really invest in the community, mm -hmm. because we aren't investing enough. It's not that we, yeah. it is reallocate police funding to invest in the community, uh, reallocate the funding to these other forms of protection of the public. Um, and I don't think defund the police is any more catchy than reallocate police funding. Um, so if we could only change what people are screaming at rallies, maybe it would not create a diversion for uh, Republicans to say, see, they just want to get rid of the police and you'll never be safe. Um, anyway, uh, sorry, I, I just thought you were marvelous on that answer. And, um, you know, you've made mentioned this bad apples come from rotten trees in policing, which is basically what you're saying is there's a systemic problem and it comes from that cause, not just that there's a few bad apples. Um, and you wrote that in an article for Brookings Institute and it focused on, I think, the structural racism that pervades police forces. Um, and you've mentioned some of the statistics which are astounding. Um, 
but so let's just talk a little bit more about the uh, police reform to eliminate systemic racism in policing um, and any other kind of systemic changes that might help with political and legal and economic and cultural changes um, that would make our society truly the vision that our founders had of equality. Uh, and I, you know, maybe they didn't have exactly racial equality since they didn't include uh, me or you in this uh, constitution. It took years. I mean, it's now the hundredth year for uh, suffrage for women. And obviously we still aren't at racial equality in our country, but what would you like to see the system do? What, what could we do in the short and maybe in the long term to improve our society? Well, I think you just touched on one of the biggest ones, and I'm hoping that we will see some of that in November, which is um, people having equal oppor opportunity to get to the polls. I mean, this year, celebrating 19A, the 19th Amendment for women to have the right to vote, I'm actually on the 19A committee at Brookings, and we have a series on this topic. And it's, and it's so important because this is a year where we're not just dealing with gerrymandering and voter suppression as it relates to the number of polling places but the attack on mail-in ballots and absentee ballots is gonna be something for this election is gonna continue to make 2020 historic. I think when it comes to police reform, and you mentioned Chicago, as you know, it's one of the most egregious examples when it comes to police misconduct. And if we look over the past 20 years, Chicago has spent over $650 million on civilian payouts for police misconduct. Imagine if that money went to the south side of Chicago. As much as people try to talk about crime in the south side of Chicago, and I spent a lot south of time. South and west, west side. West side and, and south side. And I have a, a friend who grew up there, my best friend from college, grew up in Chicago on the south side. And when people talk about crime in those areas, south side and west side, imagine if we had equal opportunity for people to have equal schooling and work infrastructure. We would see a drastically different outcome. So imagine if, though, if that money went to education equity instead of for paying for civilian payouts for police misconduct. So the way that I propose to deal with this is to shift civilian payouts for police misconduct away from taxpayer money to police department insurance policies. We actually do this in smaller municipalities who don't bring in enough tax revenue to be able to handle lawsuits. So we already have a model for this. We also know in healthcare, we do this as well. That in healthcare, when a physician messes up, it doesn't always mean somebody's doing something similar to a police officer, mistakes happen. Um, they're not always trying to hurt someone, even though of course we see those incidents and we know it disproportionately impacts black and brown people. But if we took a healthcare model, what that would mean is that as premiums go up, that a police chief and a mayor, a county executive could say, you know what, Derek Chauvin, you, are, you have cost us X millions of dollars over the past decade. We can no longer afford to keep you here. And we've seen that in places like in California, in other states where they have completely abolished police departments because they could not afford to keep them on the city's payroll. So I think that's a big thing. I think the next big thing deals with training as it relates to de-escalation training. Officers get 50, about 50 hours of, of firearm training when they come through the academy, but they get less than 10 hours of de-escalation training. What we did at University of Maryland, where I direct the Lab for Applied Social Science Research, we developed a virtual reality decision-making program for law enforcement. 
we immerse them into a virtual environment. They encounter settings they do every day in a safe environment, in a laboratory setting, but they put the goggles on and they're in a new space and they encounter traffic stops, domestic house scenes, suspicious persons, uh, burglaries at stores, uh, mental health calls. And we can examine everything from their implicit and explicit attitudes, their behavior, as well as their physiology, their eye movement, their stress. And we can give all this information back to them about how to improve their decision making to ensure that they are making sound decisions. And the final thing I'll say, which we mentioned earlier, and I think this is happening, but we need these national databases as it relates to uh, bad apples. And then we also need a database on use of force. But we also need what I call GAP. That's good apple protections. One thing I've learned from studying police officers is that a lot of them try to highlight misconduct among their ranks. They know who the ones are that are going to do something they have no business. But when they bring it up, oftentimes they're the ones who are vilified. They're the ones who are stigmatized. They're the ones who are shifted out. And so we need independent investigators at the state level to come in and investigate claims that officers have against other officers. Because if you let officers continue to police one another, we end up with a lack of accountability, which is a huge problem. So I, I just, because you mentioned Harriet, which is a highly recommended watch for everyone listening to this program. Um, I also wanna mention that for you and for all our listeners, a documentary called A Very Beautiful Thing, which is about a rowing team created at Manly Career Academy in Chicago. Um, and because it's a career academy, it was one of those schools that was within uh, my purview as head of career and technical ed. It is horrifying what it shows about growing up on the west side of Chicago and inspirational about what one person starting a rowing team could mean to a group of young boys at the time who grew up to be uh, successful men, uh, although some of them ran into trouble with drugs and crime, they overcame that. And um, it's available on Xfinity, um, which is the Comcast television station, but will be on NBC or Peacock starting, I think, August 1st or September 1st. Please, everyone, watch a very beautiful thing. It will inspire you to want to do something to help even a small group of people at a school. Think of something you can do that's within your, I, I can't start a rowing team, but I'm gonna think of something that I can do to change the lives of some of the students in the west side of Chicago, the south side of Chicago, and in your neighborhood, wherever you are. That's and great. now I'd like Victor to start asking some questions. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just taking this conversation to like an intergenerational perspective and kind of focusing on young people now, um, since the killing of George Floyd, you kind of mentioned, you know, that these issues that we've kind of been focusing on these systemic issues. And, you know, I think my peers are actively starting to protest. Others are posting on social media. But through it all, um, we've really come to understand that these are deep rooted problems in our society that need to be changed. Um, so I guess given that many of these issues facing the Black community are these systemic issues and require these long, tedious fights, um, where do you think young people can begin to start changing these deep-rooted laws and policies that face um, Black Americans? Because I think sometimes we look at it and, be, and we're, we think, you know, like, this is such a big problem. Like, I don't know if I can solve it. Like, where do you think is a good way for us to start with our um, kind of advocacy efforts? It's a really good question, Victor. I mean, I think that what young people are doing today is already changing things. 
And, you know, I think they have to give themselves, you all have to give yourselves a little bit more credit on a couple of fronts. The first credit is that you are pushing generations ahead of you. That's one of the ways that you make change. You make them pay attention to you. Oftentimes, conversations that you might have with your parents, your aunt, your uncle, older relatives makes a difference in what they think because they respect you. And so they're going to listen to you, or at least they should. You know, and then I think in most families, they do. Um, and it might lead to a healthy debate, but that's healthy. The other thing that happens is that those conversations, those debates, helps young people sharpen their perspectives, helps them sharpen their arguments. It's, you know, what we call iron sharpens iron. So you're going to be pushed. I, I, found, I found with my work that if I can get uh, an argument, an interpretation for an empirical research finding I have outside of my family, then I know I have something. If I can get it past my, my wife, my mother, and my grandmother and my aunt, I know that I'm on to something there. And so, so I think that's part of it. I think the other thing is to be reflective. We're in this movement for Black Lives that's only lasted eight years, if you want to include, if you want to start with when Trayvon Martin was killed, that the speed by which this movement has made change is is, is just extraordinary. I mean, if we go back five years ago, body-worn cameras have become normative. Implicit bias trainings have become normative. People recognizing police violence has become normative. Yes, George Floyd was the Emmett Till of the 21st century that really sparked this. But similar to the civil rights movement, people already knew that there were people like Emmett Till, just like people knew there were people before George Floyd. And the way that your generation has been able to use social media to navigate this process, mm -hmm. to highlight what's going on is important. So I think that's important to note that protest matters. You know, MLK said that protests are the voice of the unheard. And of course, he was all about nonviolent protest. And so part of thinking through that, we also know, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how, how people think about it, violence does also change things. I mean, after MLK was assassinated on April 4th, um, within a week, a week later, Lyndon Johnson passed the most wide-sweeping fair housing legislation, the Civil Rights Act of 1968. That came about because people were protesting and rioting around the country because MLK had been assassinated. So we have to be clear about some of those things. Final thing I'll say is people need to get involved. Yes, you should vote. And as John Lewis said, you should vote because some of us shed a little blood for this democratic process. The other reason why you want to vote is because, as John Lewis said, you want to get in good trouble. So you want to extend beyond voting. Protesting is getting in good trouble. Part of getting in good trouble is inserting yourself into the process. Volunteer for a campaign. Volunteer to work with someone. Volunteer to intern. Learn the process of politics because oftentimes behind the scenes, what I found is that, yes, the, the candidate and the person who was elected, yes, they obviously they matter. They're the ones sitting at the table who are voting. They're making the final decision but their staffers have a lot of influence. And so you can have a lot of influence behind the scenes, doing research, collecting information, helping to be a policy advisor. And this happens not just on a federal level, but downstream, down ballot matters. Like as Jill just said, it's not just about whether or not Biden wins. It's also about whether or not the Senate flips. And it's not only just about the, whether or not the Senate flips, it's also about what happens in select states to start setting a president for some of these changes, even if, say, we're just talking now about police reform. Mm -hmm. For sure. I think that what you just said 
hits on every single one of those notes on why it's so critical for young people to get involved um, in this moment. And kind of drawing on what you just said, um, like there is this willingness for my generation to engage in these meaningful dialogues and to kind of have these conversations surrounding racial injustice and inequality. But there are still some who don't feel comfortable because they may say the wrong thing or it's not worth for them to kind of speak up on these issues. So um, how do you think both my generation and Jill's generation can engage in these conversations surrounding race-related issues in a meaningful way um, and ultimately become that better Black ally? So, you know, I think everyone finds it difficult to have these conversations. I mean, if these conversations uh, didn't matter, they wouldn't be difficult. So I think that's one thing to realize is that oftentimes difficult things are things that matter and we want to get them right. But the only way we get them right is to put ourselves out there mm -hmm. and we're going to all mess up. We have to be okay with that. And people have to get over that point. So part of what I think how all of us can move forward is do essentially what I, what I talked about a second ago and have conversations with people who we care about and who care about us. If all of us did that, we would cover not just the United States, but the world. If we only had conversations with people who we care about and who care about us, we would cover everyone. And so the first thing we have to do is what I call be a racial equity learner. And I think Victor, you've heard me talk about this a little bit. We have to first be a racial equity learner. That means learn as much as we can about what's going on. And that means referring to academic research. You know, right now science is under attack. Um, government and transparency in government is under attack. If we wanna transform that, we actually have to refer to the correct sources. We can't just look at something and say, oh, well, so-and-so said this and they have X number of followers. Like what makes that person an expert? Like actually identify the people who have done this work. So be a racial equity learner. Second, be a racial equity advocate. Being an advocate is different from being an ally. Being an ally means that you stand in solidarity with people. That's great, but oftentimes you can be silent. And, you know, one thing my grandfather, who served in two wars, Purple Heart, Bronze Star, he was a drill sergeant, served over 21 years in the military. He taught me from birth, me and my cousins, that our silence is our acceptance. That if you're silent about something, you are complicit in it. That doesn't matter if we're talking about racial inequality, gender inequality, whether or not we're talking about marriage equality so that everyone can get married. If you're silent on these parts, then you've actually sided with the oppressor or the oppressed system. So the way you become an advocate is what Shirley Chisholm and John Lewis taught us, which is that if you're not sitting at the table, you're on the menu and someone's eating you for lunch. So as Shirley Chisholm said, bring a folding chair. And as John Lewis said, we don't just want to sit at the table. We, we want to help create the menu. There are a lot of us sitting at tables where when we look around. Those tables aren't diverse when it comes to race, when it comes to gender and the like. And we have to be willing to speak up and speak out so that those groups are represented at those tables. And then finally, we can reflect on the places where we send our kids to school. What, is, what do those schools look like? Does that school actually look like what the type of friendship network that you want your kids to go to? Or does it simply look just like your kid? Oftentimes, the way that racial segregation operates today, it looks just like your kid and they dress just like your kid because we know that race and class are highly correlated when it comes to school. So we need to reflect the world we want to see. That also means in our neighborhoods, are you sure that your neighborhood, you know, are, are there restrictive covenants on the book books? Do you have a homeowners association agreement that has some, some gray lines there that would suggest that you have the ability to discriminate against someone? These are things that we can look at to then become what I call a racial equity broker. When you go to church, 
What does your church look like? Does it look all only just like you? What does your house of worship look like? Can you partner with other churches and houses of worship to diversify the settings you're in? That's what it looks like for us to get better. And I think for people your age, the number one question I always have for people who are older is I reflect back to the time period when they were my age, when they were your age, so when they were like late teens, early 20s, think about the moment of that time and say, what were you doing then? Like, were you playing a role in anything? You know, like, were these people out like Jill, like actually doing the work? Okay, that lets you know that's an ally and an advocate. If they weren't, then that lets you know what they probably thought about people like MLK in the 60s. That, that lets you know what they probably thought about um, some of the crime bills that were put in place in the 90s. Not all... It wasn't necessarily meant to overly criminalize black people, but it did. And so those are the things you can reflect on and you want to hear growth in people over time. For sure. Yeah. And I think becoming an advocate is so essential, especially where we are now. And um, for anyone who knows me, I love Brene Brown, who's this um, vulnerability researcher. And I often cite a quote by her, and it's essentially, you know, to not have the conversations because they make you uncomfortable is the definition of privilege. And I think that, you know, it's up to us to really build those blocks um, for change. Um, but to kind of draw this conclusion to an end, um, is there anything you'd like our listeners who come from all generations to know as we continue this fight for racial justice? Or is there anything that um, we didn't mention that you'd like for us to discuss? So I think it's one big thing. As I think about policies that are being passed, we're in this moment that we call a policy window. It's like a match has been lit and COVID-19 is not only highlighted racial health disparities, but also issues with policing. It put a spotlight on it. And, it, and it comes back to systemic racism and how it operates in our country and around the world. And the research I've done comes down to kind of one main conclusion that if we really, really want to get past this, we have to continue to have serious conversations and pass legislation as it relates to reparations in this country. And it's twofold. Not only is it the financial part, and I've written with Andre Perry about this, that what we really push are, are social programs or what we call gateways. So when people are going to college, when people are purchasing a home, when people are trying to start a business, these opportunities where we know discrimination goes on steroids and prevents people from really actualizing the American dream. But on the other hand, we really have to venture into um, a version of reparations that deals with truth and reconciliation. And it just so happens that two Congresswomen, last name Lee, are driving this. Barbara Lee on the Truth and Reconciliation side, and Sheila Jackson Lee on the uh, reparations or HR 40 side, that we have to deal with um, America's original sin, which is slavery, but also its ramifications. Or as I like to say, slavery that's just been put into a new wrapper and it's just been packaged up differently. And that is the only way we're going to move forward. And there are various ways in which that can happen, but these conversations are starting to get more serious. And I think they should, because it's not only about the financial side, which I have thoughts on where the money will come from, but it's about a truth and reconciliation process because America is never truly healed. Because I know as a Southerner, the Confederacy got let off the hook. And the reason why people fly Confederate flags is because they think they won. And we never really dealt with that. And so as a Southerner being from Tennessee that grew up in Georgia, went to grad school in Indiana, I, I see that living in living outside of D.C. and Maryland. The reason why people hold on to that is because we have a warped history about what actually happened. And we reintegrated the Confederacy into the Union in a way that still left black people on the outside looking in. 
Well, this was such an amazing conversation, and we are so glad that you joined with uh, you joined us today. Um, so thank you so much again. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you will join us mm -hmm. again. Yeah. It was a very enlightening conversation. Mm -hmm. I can't wait. Yeah. Thank you. We hope you listening also enjoy this episode. Be sure to follow us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and send us suggestions, ideas for future topics, and speakers you would like to see via Jill, myself, or our website. Lastly, Intergenerational Politics is now on Apple Podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and rate our channel to support us. Thanks for listening, and see you on our next episode.